This episode of the No Film School podcast was brought to you by Elements, human-centered media storage. Check them out at elements.tv, the new centerpiece of your facility, which is so much more than just storage. Hey everyone, this is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Today our interview is with filmmaker Jim Cummings. Jim has actually been on the No Film School podcast before um, for his project, uh, his film, and the short Thunder Road. Um, But today he is with us because of his new film, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is available now, streaming everywhere. Uh, the Wolf of Snow Hollow is a horror comedy. Jim is an actor, writer, director. He's a triple threat, does it all. Uh, he gives us some real insights into how he does it all and what makes that possible. He is an incredibly uh, skilled and um, forthcoming filmmaker. Uh, he has a lot of experience. He's done a lot of different things in the industry and What really grabbed me was that he has formative experiences with failure, and he highlights those as part of what brought him to where he is now, which is a place of of success. And I think we can all relate to the ideas of failure, filmmakers, and anybody really. When we hit the wall, when things don't go quite the way we expect them to, I don't need to explain what failure is. I don't know why I am doing that. But basically, I think that Jim does a really good job contextualizing that feeling and talking about how it drove him to the next thing. And then what the next thing was and what about that thing drove him to yet another thing, which is where he is now. And I uh, I think you'll enjoy it. He's... Um, he's kind of like fighting the good fight in the sense that he's making movies. He's following his passion. These are movies that he wants to make and he's, he's finding a way to make them happen, but they really reflect his personal taste. He's not out there trying to, um, well, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I don't want to say what he's trying to do, but what I do know is that he's making the movies that are funny and interesting to him, which is a hard thing to pull off in this day and age because, you know, there's not that much money to go around for feature films. Anyway, here's Jim Cummings. It's really cool to have you here yet again. We think you've been on here twice or maybe three times. So, well, maybe some of our listeners will remember the exact number of times. But again, it's such a pleasure to have you and we're really excited about this project, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Um, one of the things I usually like to start with, and you probably talked about this before with us, but for those who haven't heard, we'll, we'll go back again. What was, um, for your career, what, and, and, your, and the beginning of your career, what really launched your interest in this field? And what got you started? Uh, watching the matrix when I was a kid, watching the matrix and fight club, like a hundred times, uh, when I was a kid, those two movies had huge influences on me. And then, um, I don't know. I just like, 
I just became very interested in craftsmanship and movies and the history of film. And I just watched everything that I could. And then that kind of became my education. Um, although I did go to film school, I went to Emerson College in Boston. I feel like the, like the vast majority, maybe 90% of the stuff that I learned was outside of classes, like in the library watching stuff or making little shorts with friends of mine at school. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like after graduating high school, I, I knew that I wanted to make movies somehow. And I, I had a dream of making movies as a writer and director, but then um, just kind of failed in a lot of the short films and the smaller features <laughs> that I was doing. Seriously, dude. It, and it was no, it was the, abysmal. I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was it is an incredibly uh, soul crushing, um, inadequate feeling to make something that sucks. And I did that with like a few short films and then a 70 minute feature that just failed. I shot it immediately after graduating college. Um, it was a very small movie, like flew my buddies down from school and we shot something in New Orleans called No Flood Bowl here that like doesn't, you can't see it anywhere. It got into one film festival. It took me a year and a half to edit it. And that kind of became grad school for me. Um, when it came to like making stuff, but then I was a producer for six years after that, helping other directors and writers make stuff. And only after seeing them work, was it I'm like, all right, cool. I'll, I can, I can do this again. I, uh, I want to go back to the first, there's a lot of things I want to talk about that you just, you just shared, <laughs> but one of the first things I want to go back and share is that it was 1999 because the matrix and fight club were movies in 1999, which is like, we talked about it a lot last year because, and we have a big post up that we wrote on, on the site on no film school because it was such a pivotal year in movies. And yeah. I have often cited, I, it sounds like we're like around the same age. I've often cited that year and that time period as being part of what captured my interest as well. I think the things that were happening in movies around them were really interesting and unique, especially even compared to now um, the, the kinds of movies that were being made right around that time are harder to come by. Um, so I think it's really cool that you can still pinpoint those two movies from that very unique moment. Um, cause both, both of those movies are really about like kind of reality bending in a way. Right. Yeah. And like, it, it, yeah, I think they like graduating high school with all the rules and like, I, I don't know, like I, it felt like you had to get good grades. You had to do all of this stuff. But the whole time I was like watching movies in my in my room and none of it really mattered. It felt yes. like it never really mattered. And those two movies are about kind of breaking the norms of things not really mattering and focusing more on philosophy. And like both of those movies are such, you know, different philosophies, but about what is real, what is important um, and what is cool, I guess, like when it comes to making movies. Yeah. And just making movies about things that are a little more esoteric or, psychologically driven or questioning society and our goals and everything. So uh, it's a very cool, it was a very cool time. Um, but so then following up from there, the other thing I wanted to, to ask about further was, so you got out of film school and you thought, I'm doing it. I'm making a feature. Was that what happened after Emerson? Yeah. So, so at Emerson, I made a bunch of short films with my buddies as a producer or as a director. And I just kind of like had a click of filmmakers that were, you know, with me and making stuff. And there were kind of these like friendly, friendly, like sibling rivalries that were happening amongst other cliques, like Tony Ascenda had a team and the McManus brothers and Danny Madden and the Daniels. And there were all these like kind of local school film festivals where we would all like have friendly competitions and and show off our stuff. It was a good, good year. It was a good class to be part of. Um, 
and then and then really i i like came on to be a cinematographer for a feature in cape cod and that kind of broke the seal for me of how to actually make something that it wasn't a pipe dream that you could physicalize the daydreams that you were having about making stuff and that it was easier than it seemed because of the technology because you could shoot at cinematic quality um for relatively cheap then you know the 5d mark ii had just come out the red cameras had just come out and were shooting 24p and i'd already done all this like camera lens nerd stuff and that that was kind of like my insight into into production. And so I had written the script about post-Katrina New Orleans and sent it to my buddies. And they all had the desire to keep making stuff and to like make something impressive. And so we like all camped out at my house in New Orleans, my parents' house in New Orleans and spent, you know, 20 days making this thing. And it was so much fun and we learned a lot and we learned a lot about what not to do when making a yeah. movie and to like not, but, but, but it was great. It, it was something where we were able to afford through the budget of that film to give everybody grad school that happened to be on that set. So like we all learned the collective lesson about not assuming the audience is going to be interested in a movie. You have to make them interested <laughs> in the story. And that's Can something tell, that like, tell me about yeah. how you learned that lesson. That's such an important lesson. Can you yeah, tell me what a, it was specifically that happened or didn't happen? Oh, you guys I, sure, sure. I was writing dialogue about post-Katrina New Orleans, something that I had, you know, kind of gone through. And I thought that this was going to be applicable and interesting to everybody in the world. And instead, it's just boring. And so I had written this like 100 page script and then had to cut the movie down to 72 minutes because so much of it was just boring. And it's like, all right, well. You know, I, you, you write this stuff and you think that it's going to go over well and that people are going to love it because it's auteur or it's a vision or something like that. But yeah. it, it was just awful. And like, I, I feel like a <laughs> lot of people in talking to people who had made their first features, they all say that like they before making their giant successful feature, they made a feature first. And then they just say like, oh, yeah, that was my first feature. Or the news says that that's the first feature because we all want to believe that somebody can come out of nowhere and make something without any practice because that's fulfilling to us as film students and it's yeah that's sort true. of that's the mythology i guess right there's the yeah. um i've heard people call it like your zero feature and i've sometimes talked to people we've oh, talked that's about good. the idea of like your 0 0.1 or your 0 0.2 and on and on because the first feature is the first feature that everybody sees hopefully but there's a whole lot of stuff propping it up and i i do also recall i think that fascination comes in part from um, well, I don't know. I think there's a lot of instances in the industry where there's this idea that it's someone's first feature, but in fact, it was not really. Um, but so, so yeah, so you learned a lot there and you seems, seems like you had a really healthy ability to confront your own, like, is this good? Is this working? Do you only have that now? Or did you have that then? Like, was it hard? Was it emotionally hard to come by? People always feel, I think in this industry, that they always need to be perfect, right? There isn't there isn't a lot of room for, well, I don't know, I'm learning as I go, right? Yeah, I mean, in that moment, it was devastating. Like, <laughs> screening the movie for, like, an empty theater at the one film festival that it played at, and then going out and looking at a, you know, it was a shopping cart that was in a canal half submerged. And I just stared at this thing for like 45 minutes, you know, with my buddy Danny and Alan just sitting there just being like, I'm a failure. I am. I am. This was a dumb decision to have made movies. Um, and I felt that way for a long time, almost six years making other people's movies. And I, I was helpful and I felt like contributive that I was producing things. Um, 
but I, I always knew that I could be good or I, I thought that I could be good. Um, and then after that moment, when I was looking at that shopping cart <laughs> that was in the canal, <laughs> I was, I said, I kept saying to myself, I'm never going to make another boring movie. And it only took getting roasted basically by an audience. When a movie isn't working in a theater, you can feel it. And it's just oh, yeah. so painful, especially yes. when it's yours. Yes. Um, it's like doing bad stand up or something. Uh, and from that moment on, I was like, I'm only going to make something interesting. And then over the years, I was working for other directors and working in comedy with directors doing sketch. And I just saw so many missed opportunities that it became ambition in me to do something better, to kind of impress the people in my Facebook feed who were loving this other stuff. And I just wanted to be like, no, this is not funny. I'm going to do something funny. Um, (laughs) And then that became, yeah, that became real competitive ambition in me. And um, it grew in into the Thunder Road short film. It was like me driving to work every day, um, pissed off because you know I, I thought that I was going to make something really funny, or I could I was possible it was possible for me to make something funny, and I just rehearsed it a thousand times on the drives to and from work, and then that became the writing period of just doing it in my car with the radio and uh, and acting it out. What kind of producing was it that you were doing? Were you doing like? So, can you tell me tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I, I produced for my buddy Danny coming out of school, Danny Madden, um, who made a feature. His, his short feature is 53 minutes. It's called Euphonia, and it's on um, Vimeo. And he'd done a bunch of short animation that I'd helped him, to, you know, like running Kickstarter campaigns and just like starting a startup, basically creating a, an animation company with him. Um, and then I worked with my buddy, Tony Ascenda, both of those kids I graduated with at Emerson and Tony was doing these music videos and like parody stuff and uh, sketch stuff in Los Angeles. I lived in San Francisco, but I moved to Los Angeles and he wanted me to come on to do music videos for a rapper named Lil Dicky. And I was like, well, I got nothing to do. Let's, let's do it. And I listened to the music and I was like, this is gonna be so much fun. And so I made three Lil Dicky music videos that then blew up beyond our wildest dreams. And, you know, Dave is now, um, who he is because of these like little music videos that we made in the backyard. Um, and, uh, and that became kind of my, my starting career. And then because of that success, I got a job at college humor being a producer, a branded producer for, or like a line producer of branded content. So I was like building schedules, having no creative say over the stuff, but I organized sets like three times a week, basically. And then that, that kind of made me feel more confident that it was possible and that all I would have to do is just step in and, and write and direct the thing. Yeah. It's funny. I had very similar experiences. I did a lot of line producing for a while, particularly in comedy. Um, not college humor, but it's just funny because I, I, I've had that experience where you're working on something and you're like, what is it about? Th-? I mean, it's not my job to say, but this thing yeah. is just not that great. <laughs> or I feel like there's more here. There could be more here or, you know, it gives you yeah. it gets, sometimes it gets those juices flowing. But so so Thunder Road happened um, and that sort of set you on this path. And w- would you have called that your first feature, I suppose? Like, like yeah, after the other sure, one. <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, I still struggled like in doing the, the short film. Like I submitted it to Sundance, never dreamed that it would get in, got in. It won the grand jury prize and then spent the next 10 months, 11 months going around Hollywood and shaking hands and meeting a thousand really cool people. But none of that turned into anything. Um, I think it's a very different industry than it was when Damien Chazelle was doing the same, um, the same map. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I kind of got disheartened at that point. It was like the worst financial year that I had, despite having won Sundance in 2016, January. Um, 
and so then I just started making more stuff and, you know, convincing people to let us do web series and things. And then, um, you know, finally got up the gall and listened to Mark when he said the cavalry isn't coming and ran a Kickstarter campaign to make the Thunder Road feature. And that I would I would probably consider my first feature for sure. Yeah, it's uh, you know, that's another interesting and familiar story uh, to me. But but we talk about it a lot on the No Film School podcast, which is that you can go to Sundance like that's like winning a lottery ticket. I always say you could win at Sundance. That's like another lottery ticket. Like that's the lottery within the lottery. Right. And then even after that, there's a whole other gauntlet of just like, well, now what? Yeah. Can you develop it? Can you pitch it? Can you can, does is there a producer who's ready for it? Is the timing right for whatever it was, you know? Um, yeah, I, I think I think the biggest one for me is like purposely not listening to people who might be lying to you. And like, that's something that is a huge hurdle that many people don't make it over. Like listening to people Give me an telling example. you that you're Give, great. Yeah, that's a that's a take that I haven't heard a lot on and I want to hear more about it. Um, tell, yeah. Uh, do you mean specifically like when you're doing, say, the rounds after winning or something like that, or you're meeting with uh you're pitching at production companies or you're working with some agents. Like, tell me a little bit about what you mean. Yeah, sure. So, so the, the name Hollywood, uh, it was called Hollywood because it was, is a forest that was covered in brambles made entirely of brambles. that was hard to get through and nothing has changed. It's like perfectly <laughs> tame, perfectly named town. Um, and our new film is about that. Our new film is about the WGA packaging fight and agencies and, and kind of this weird, um, architecture that is and landscape that is the industry. And unless you have a, a good understanding of how it actually works, and it's it's constantly changing with technology, everything is becoming more democratized. And people will tell you that you need to go through these certain systems in order to be taken seriously. They're trying to appease your ego um, and make it and kind of like lie to you to make you feel special. Uh, it's like having a shitty first boyfriend, basically, um, but or a high school boyfriend or something like that. But but really, there are so many obstacles of what is true and what is realistic that many people, even after having their first amazing success in the industry, will spend many years waiting for their ship to sail in. And that's just not what the world is like now or, or any or at any time like the fact that you can go into a Best Buy and get a camera that can shoot cinematic quality as best as the rest of them is a sign of the times. And you should be thinking like an investor now rather than, you know, somebody who's buying a lottery ticket. You're, you're going to have to make your own success. And that is that is only becoming more proven, especially now. Like, I feel like the coronavirus has fast forwarded every industry about 10 years because of. Yeah. 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 I, I, I agree about all of that. I actually really like, though, the way you're putting it and your some of your metaphors, because um, the democratization of film, a big which is a big topic for, for you know, film school and for our community. But there's a lot of that old hurry up and wait thing. But I think what you're really emphasizing is the wait, which is like, well, we'll wait to package it with the right person or we'll wait to make sure that, you know, that so-and-so gives you the green light or, oh, they gave you the green light, but then they switch jobs. So now it's not a go anymore. Or Like there's all these weird stops and starts when literally right now, like you said, anybody can go out and shoot anything yeah. and they can yeah. put it out for all to see. 
And yeah. the only and, question and, really becomes like, how do you get the eyeballs, right? I think I think the other thing is the thing that that distracts me. Um, this kid I'm talking to is a filmmaker who is losing his vision. I think he's having macular degeneration faster than than most people do, and so he actually does have a ticking clock of he needs to make movies like he actually needs to do it. Otherwise he's going to lose his vision by the time he's old wow. enough to be able to, to make movies. And that was just the perfect metaphor in talking to him. Really lovely guy. I talked to him you know, once a week or something like that. Um, he's trying to make these Western movies and he, he can do it. He's, he's actually writing stuff that he can make. Um, but in thinking about it, I really related to him that because all of that stuff that you're talking about right there of hurry up and wait, all that waiting is you sacrificing your youth it's like you're only young once and you should be making movies while you're young. It's, it's like foregoing, basically you would never listen to anybody who's telling you to not do anything before you die. Um, but we just listen to people because they're wearing a suit and, and we think that they know what they're talking about. Meanwhile, their agency is falling apart. Like, <laughs> like, like they've had to fire half of their staff in the last three months yes. and they're telling you, you still have to go through the normal channels. It's or, like, or they're like theaters are, crumbling um yeah literally crumbling like and the model yeah. is falling apart and changing and none of them even know if they'll be at because and that yeah that's something that i i also learned um firsthand which was like you could pitch turnover. somebody and they'll be gone in a year yeah. like you know turnover. that turnover um, of like is, is just yeah. out of control so so right now when everybody's listening to this our new film the wolf of snow hollow should be out digitally around the world and it's crazy to think that we spent you know, eight to 10 months editing this film, taking notes in the editing room. And literally none of the people that we were taking notes from are still there. Yeah, like, <laughs> true. And, uh, and that's a very interesting thing. Like, obviously you, you have that, that thing. There's a buddy of mine who's talking to me about taking notes from a, an executive somewhere, a really nice kid, a very talented filmmaker in and of himself. Um, but he said, he said, I'm, I'm taking notes from people who have never edited a YouTube video. And it's like, that's a strange thing. Like why, how do these people get into the positions of being creative executive when they have no creativity? And like all of these signs of like the things that you and I are joking about, like laughing about it right now are actual realities that are preventing yes. people from making something of themselves and having their dreams come true and or having their dreams dashed. Otherwise, it's really, it's really so big and heartbreaking to think about. Um, that, and like, I, I, we were in that world. Yeah, I, I, I like to tell a story and maybe some people in the listening will be annoyed that I'm telling it again. But um, I uh, had the experience of pitching and developing something when everybody around me, agents, producers, etc., were saying, this kind of thing is hot, so do this. But by the time we finished that project, that kind of thing was no longer, not only were all, had all those people moved on, but that kind of thing was no longer really of interest or it was like, that thing isn't hot anymore. And I think that's a common refrain, but uh, it's, it's partly because you really have to listen to, you have to be aware, like you're saying, be aware of your own timeline. But what I always say is like, be aware of your own, like what drives you? Because you're going to be the only one standing there the whole time they're going to be gone and doing other stuff or who yeah. knows what. Um, yeah. but I, I agree. It's a way, it's a lot of wasted time because, um, you could be right now you could be shooting stuff 20, 30 years ago. That was less true. So I think that the business is slow to catch up to the reality. Um, 
you know, when it was, you were waiting for 35 millimeter film that you couldn't get your hands sure. on or a specific camera, but we are so far past that, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think, I think the business is going to take forever to adapt to that, but they've actually done well. The, the, the thing that's shocking to me is the public not reacting to that, the technological advances of like, people still feel like they have to work their way up in the system instead of seeing themselves as competition rather than subordinates of the industry. Yeah, I love it. I, I completely agree. Everybody out there is competition for the industry. And all these platforms are. Like, you can get it for free. A lot of places. Um, yeah. And younger people are doing that. They don't necessarily want to turn to the subscription services. They'd rather use the free service where there's a lot of content, believe it or not. Um, and a lot of content creators that is reaching more people, too. Um, yeah. But uh, so, so all that, the philosophy of kind of what's happening and how fast things are changing... Um, all that aside, like, so Wolf of Snow Hollow does kind of come through some of the more, uh, more, I mean, it's not like something you shot by yourself and put up on YouTube, you know, it's yeah. a little closer to the traditional model. So tell me a little bit about where it came from and where, how it got to be. Yeah. So I wrote, I wrote it in the summer of 2016 before writing the Thunder Road feature. And at that time, I couldn't get anybody to give us any money to make a feature because we had never made a feature before. I could get financing for like web series and short films sometimes if I was lucky, but I, I could never get any financing to do a feature, even if it was to make the feature of the Sundance winning short Thunder Road, <laughs> which is crazy to think about. That's And that was... Four years ago, so it's it's even harder to to do that now. Um, four years ago is, is an eternity right now, right? Yeah, four months ago is an eternity. But anyway, and so and so I wrote it as a feature slash web series that it could be cut up into episodes because nobody would trust us to make a feature, but knowing that it would work as a feature and organizing it in my mind as if it was a feature that we could re-edit into a feature. Um, and we're talking to a few digital companies, and then we pitched it to a few studios. None, none, nobody wanted it because it was a movie about you know a monster that kills women um and so it kind of sat on the back burner for a long time and then we made the thunder road feature which did well and then people started reaching out again for the werewolf movie because it was like a, a, an interesting property now that we were successful now that we had any kind of acclaim in the feature space they wanted to finance it um and so there was some gravity behind that that we very quickly turned into a green light. It was like we, we reached out to a couple of different people. I knew the, the executives at Orion. They were actually good friends. Um, Dan Kagan is like a wonderful dude who I met when he was working at Sony, I think a year before, two years before. And so he was already kind of a buddy. He's our age and got what we were trying to do comedically and, and horror wise. Um, and he pitched up the ladder and very quickly it was like, okay, cool. I think you guys are greenlit. And we are like, really? Okay. Shit. <laughs> now we actually, and then I spent the next four months basically, um, develop, developing it with the MGM team, the Orion team, and then just writing it because it had to be great. It was like, you know, it had to be something that was actually fantastic. It couldn't be a web series. Um, and so I spent four months and then like finally the entire holiday break in my parents' house in uh, in Virginia, just like in this back house, just like tiny little like smokehouse writing the final draft before we went and shot it that March. Nice. So you had, it must've been exciting to be in that position though, to be like, oh, it's really happening. And now I get to make it like a big, good version of it. Um, yeah. 
And I mean, that was cool. Like that, that's the coolest thing of it, right? Like you, you make movies in your backyard with your buddies dreaming of doing the David Fincher thing and making bigger movies and having your 14 year old self be proud of you. Um, but then, (laughs) but then like when it actually happens, it was never lost on us. It was like, Oh my God, this is actually, we get to, we get to do this thing. We get to like actually get paid to make movies, which is like the coolest thing. We had, we had 55 people on set at any given time. And it was cool, man. It was, it was a gnarly experience. Elements Bolt is a groundbreaking storage solution, offering up to 10 times the speed of an SSD-based system. Designed to deliver amazing performance to every department in your facility, from scanning to color grading, editing, VFX, and GFX, Elements Bolt will put an end to stuttering playback, slow copying, or proxy creation for offline editing. This flexible, high-speed storage platform can supercharge any professional post-production environment and even provides native Avid bin locking functionality. Every Elements system is jam-packed with amazing tools and features developed to help with day-to-day post-production tasks. The extremely intuitive user interface is designed with creative people in mind and can easily be used with little to no IT knowledge. Ready to boost your performance? Find out more at elements.tv bolt. Do you think that part of that not being lost on you comes from the fact that you'd failed, like you said, in your words, which like you'd experienced something where you said, I know what it's like to make a movie that's not that people aren't responding to. And I know oh, that yeah. feeling and I'm never going to do it again. So I feel like you could approach it's just to me, my, my mind immediately goes to like, I'm sure when you were sitting there writing it, you were thinking every page has to be dynamic. Every moment has to work. It has to be dope. But but then yeah. but then not just that that wasn't lost on me of how lucky and privileged we were to be able to make movies in this way. But also having worked as a member of the crew on other movies that sucked that <laughs> I was yeah. like you know working on, and then I was just like oh well I just want you know I want to work on something good someday. It was wonderful to have an open editing room and like be very conscious of the people who are lifting heavy, you know, C stands up flights of stairs for your stupid, you know, monster movie. And like, and we, we were always encouraging that of like, everybody gets to see video village. There is no hierarchy here. The best idea wins. And really I was using my early, you know, film sets that I was working on as, as a grad school, as an education myself. And so to be able to provide that for anybody who wanted to do it made it feel so much more collaborative and fulfilling as a life journey for people that it's not, you know, it's not this exclusive thing where you're kicked out of it and just, you know, set up the stuff for us. It, it was, it was, it's a really wonderful thing to be able to call the shots and to be a, a nice person while doing it, which well, I, you know, now you're like, now you're like my personal hero because that to me, <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm, but like, that's exactly what I it's always so thought people should do. I never yeah. got the, and every set I was on or every place I worked, I never understood why people, seem to well i i should say i do understand but i don't think it's right to create that hierarchy constantly and we've talked about it at no film school often that that um it keeps people out of the fun of it and it makes you wonder why you got into it and it burns people out really fast and if someone's working really hard to make your as you said your monster movie like why can't they watch in video village and why can't they feel like they're a part of 
they want to be part of it. They want to be inspired. It's so much more fun. And then also like in the editing room too, like I, I, you know, we spend several months doing sound design and like music and all of that is because we want the people who worked on the movie to go, yeah, I worked on that one. Like that's yeah. the point of this whole thing to give that's people really cool. value. Yeah. And just why, like uh, you can feel, I always felt you can feel a good set sometimes not always, but sometimes when you're watching a movie, um, when, when I'm, I remember finding out that the Tarantino sets, like everybody loves working on them and his crew is really tight. And it makes sense because you can kind of feel that there's like this bubbly energy, like people are enjoying it. I'm sure he sure. doesn't let everybody weigh in at Video Village that much. I, I'm confident in it. But I think that there is an energy there of teamwork and enjoying the collaboration and enjoying the experience and it's not being not a drag and so many projects are um and they yeah. don't have to be nor should they be i love that i love the spirit of that what did you guys shoot on we shot on the alexa mini um natalie kingston was our cinematographer and we shot on k35 lenses which i think are like repackaged canon lenses from the 1970s or early 80s i want to say Oh, cool. Did it give it like a, was it, was that for a, a particular look you wanted? Yeah. And talking about Natalie, she has like a very ethereal style of, of shooting. Like a lot of her stuff, you can go on her Instagram. She's an incredibly talented cinematographer, but like all of her stuff feels like there's a bit of haze in the air and it has this kind of like, hmm. it's much more artful than, than, than my stuff. Like the, the stuff that I had done before. And we want to do that on purpose. Like it should feel like this 1970s, you know, Orion classics kind of movie. Yeah. And the, and, and it's also like small town. We wanted to like feel the air that we we were in it's like a lot of the time that we were having these long-form conversations about each scene it was yeah all of it lent to like these more soft focus lenses and uh and, and kind of like having bloom and and to not shy away from that stuff not having it be this kind of like super crisp master yes. prime kind of movie it should be something that feels a bit more 70s yeah and and i also other people worked on the film that i wanted to get to so Robert Forrester, the great Robert Forrester, who has been in a, a lot of things, um, the late Robert Forrester. What was it like working with him? And, and was he someone you targeted when you were taking the script out? Did you kind of pigeon that? Did you like spot that role and say, we're going to find somebody with some gravitas and some history? You know, no, uh, we were or, just super lucky. Like, <laughs> yeah, he, he seriously like like I had written it for this older character and um, and we were like going out to people and thinking of like who like there's very few people of that caliber that are still working right now. And so yes. it was like, who the hell are we going to get? Like, who's great? And then we knew that Matt Miller, my producer, one of my producers had worked with him on a film called Too Late. And so he had his info. And like, I think it was like five weeks before we started shooting, we sent out a script to him. And he said yes. And it was like, oh, no, that means that we're going to have to make this really good. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> as soon as he was involved in it, it was like, all right, now I have to pretend to be a better actor than I am. And like, it was really scary having somebody of his ilk in the film because it was like raised the bar and everybody felt like, oh, my God, well, if Robert's going to be on the set, like we really have to make this incredible. And then I imagine to the same extent, Ricky Lindholm, who's hilarious oh, yeah. and extremely talented but when did she come into the picture she came in around the same time she came in about six weeks five weeks before we started shooting and she was the one who was like oh no i can do this like i at the beginning i was like she's too funny like she's too yeah. you know and so i'd only seen her in, in comedies before and then she called me and was like 
you know, I grew up in a very small town and like, I am very much this person in the script. I'm very much Julia. Just give me a shot. And then she sent in a tape and we were like, yep, that's her. Cool. She's got it. And then what's so funny, she has this incredible ability. I know she's like a megastar now and stuff, uh, but like on set, she's just very much one of us and is a super cool person. And so it didn't feel like you were in the presence of this, you know, superstar. She has this like awesome ability to when you're talking with her, you are the most interesting thing in the world at that time. She, she's, she's such a wonderful person and knew my lines better than I did. And um, yeah, <laughs> so, just a, a super pro. So to my next, the next thing I want to ask you about is you keep mentioning this too. Like it, people kept raising the bar. It feels like for you, you know, like, and that's a good thing. It seems like you rose to the challenge, but like you, you realize this movie has to be really good. And, Oh, Robert Forster is going to be there. I have to be really good. Oh, Ricky Lindholm, who's going to know my lines better than me. But so you acted, wrote and directed this. People don't do that a whole lot anymore. Can you tell me like that um, the pressure of doing all of that, how you manage it? Um, yeah. Why it, it I, it's just sort of an interesting thing. We, I, I don't talk to interview a lot of filmmakers who are also in front of the camera and it's their words too. So it's a yeah. lot. And I'm really curious what, what it's like. It is my favorite thing in the world. It is the ultimate high. I grew up watching Jackie Chan movies and he was, you know, like writing, directing, acting, and also doing fight choreography. And I just love that. It's so fulfilling to watch. Um, especially when he's like getting beaten up and you're like, Oh, he wrote the scene for him to get beaten. <laughs> like it's just this funny conversation between the audience and the filmmaker um and then on set i have three wonderful producers matt miller benjamin wiesner natalie metzger um who have been with me since the beginning and they're always in video village or at least you know two of them are in video village while the other one is putting out fires um and then danny madden was our creative director on thunder road and wolf of snow hollow and he's a director in his own right but he's also i've known the guy for 15 years we graduated together and he's one of my best friends um and so because of that, when he's on set, he's able to know what I want so that if we're filming something and it's a 13 minute long take and something goes wrong halfway through, any one of those people can say, cut, it wasn't as good as the last one, let's reset. And that's a really wonderful thing. Like I, It may seem like I'm doing everything because of the titling, but it is a very collaborative experience when I can't see the monitor because it has to be. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I sort of was assuming or thinking, you know, the way you spoke about your set and the energy of Video Village, that you were probably using that to allow yourself to be in multiple places at once. And, and also what I think people don't realize, but you've hinted at here, is that it comes with, you have to put a great amount of trust in the people you're collaborating with, right? Because you say things like, it had to be really good, but you also are in a position where you can't see it from every angle, literally. Yeah. And you're asking other people to sort of like to rely upon them to be the ones to tell you like that take was better or you weren't great here or oh, like a thousand like, and times. Right. And you your ability the to line. Right. Yeah, and you good. and you have to know that <laughs> you have faith in them and their ability to be honest and you believe them. Yeah. Or do you not believe over. them? And every time they say it, you're like, no, 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 it's great. <laughs> um, no, there was times like obviously slapping the corpse in Thunder Road. Everybody was like, you can't do that. That's not going to go good with audiences. But I was like, I think it'll work. I think and like, obviously, the majority of the people that see the movie are like, oh, yeah, it's like such a cathartic and terrifying confession that this guy's alone in a room. And it's also really awkward. And that was kind of what I wanted out of the thing. It was supposed to be shocking. It was supposed to be unsanitized, A24 kind of filmmaking. Um 
but there, I mean, there were plenty of times where it was like, okay, that's not that, that you know, that, like we, we were always having those conversations of how far you push the boundaries and what's okay. But then right. also like one of my favorite moments were on set and I'm, you know, trying to listen to four conversations at once. It feels like I'm John Marshall. It feels like I'm in the movie, but it, that's what kind of being on set is like. It's juggling a thousand different departments at once. Um, and I'm hearing Danny Madden and somebody comes up to talk to him about something that had to be in the scene, a prop that was in the scene. And Danny said, no, he's not going to want that one. It'll be fun. And it was, it was nice to know. And I kind of checked out of that conversation. Like Danny immediately got it right. And I was like, that's why any of this is successful because I have people who know the language of the movie and what I'm trying to do with this stupid thing um, <laughs> that can answer that can answer for me and like they 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 speak the language and so because of that of what the what they know what the movie needs and I don't have to be present in every little thing I can memorize lines or cry in my car and like get ready for the next scene that's going to be emotional you know. Yeah, I mean that. Uh, I mean, it, ma- it makes sense. I do think it's nice to kind of um, debunk or at least demystify the idea of the of the of the do everything um, auteur in front of the camera, wrote the lines, wrote the scripts, directing it. Um, but knowing you can trust, the only way it works is for you to trust the people you're working with, which it sounds like you do. Um, and are there ever things? I'm curious, like. You look at it and you think, oh, no, I, I would have said that, but I wasn't in that moment and I couldn't change it. Yeah, sure. There are moments where it's like, oh, I missed the punchline. I could have gotten or like I could have if I had said this, that would have been funnier. Like, you know, you always go back through your scripts and you cross things out and put things in italics and things like that. But but no, I mean, for the most part. Um, I'm too busy doing other stuff. Like once it's done, I can't touch it anymore. And so because of that, I'm not going to do a director's cut, you know, 10 <laughs> years from now. So it's like, all right, I'm going to write something else. I'm going to, I'm going to incorporate that thinking into the next thing. And oh, that's cool. And yeah. Right. You, do you ever, um, you nuts. is it hard to edit yourself though, to see yourself on the screen and like your performance and like, know if it's the, I mean, you trust your editor, I assume there you, you do some test cuts with maybe your producers. Like how do you go through yeah, sure. even then, you know? I mean, with that stuff, it's very much, I mean, I'm, I've been a Redditor for like eight to 10 years, um, off and on. So I kind of like, I feel like my metronome of what is going to be interesting or what's going to work was kind of sculpted just from being on that platform daily for so long of like, I understand, I think what the people are going to think is funny or what people are actually going to think is heartwarming. Um, and so editing is very second nature to me. It's, it's kind of like using, you know, my audience understanding and audience engagement um, to set that metronome. And then with Wolf is No Hollow, we had two editors, but we were all kind of tag teaming in the room and they were, they were wonderful. I mean, like I, I sucked the first few times I was making the the edit and um, Brett on, and on I Wolf of Snow Hollow or in general. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my buddy, Brett Thomas and I were the, were editing the film and he was taking over because I was workshopping something else at the time. And, uh, and he and I only agreed with each other about what was going to make the movie fantastic. And we got it. We understood what we were trying to do. And then the producers in the studio were like, yeah, that's great that you guys agree on this thing. It's not making the movie any better. And so I was like, <laughs> all right, well, shit, like that sucks. And so we had we brought on um, another buddy, Patrick Barnes, who came on and he did not give a shit about the vision of that we had of what the movie was going to be. And that was so refreshing. It was exactly what we needed. It was like him going in and watching every frame of every scene to like cherry pick small moments to make them um, stronger and to rework things that I thought were dope that just weren't working. It was good on this on the page and it wasn't it wasn't good on screen. Um, and you need your I want to highlight for people your ability throughout the way you've spoken about your work to recognize 
when someone else is saying something that you should listen to them or when you're wrong about something or your ability to be wrong. And it, that humility and ability to, to change course is such a driving force behind success creatively. And well, I don't want to give you the impression that I'm that ever. So like I do do that and, and, and it's only about 50% of the time. There were moments in both films, both my features that I fought to put in and the producers at every step of the way said, this is not going to work. This is stupid. This is like, this is not good. Um, give you, for instance, the, the biggest fight I've had, I wanted to put in this moment at the end of the Wolf of Snow Hollow where we see my character as a child and his mom leaving for the first time. It's like 1970s. And we see this like moment that was formulative to this, to this person, this adult's life. And, uh, and my producers were like, you're introducing two new characters, one of which is a child. People are like, what the hell is going on in the last like two minutes of the movie or whatever? And I was blind to it. I was like, that's it. I'm getting drunk. I'm out of here. Like, I, I just could not see that that was how audiences were going to respond to it. I was so headstrong that it was going to be good this way. And instead, we, we end the film in this beautiful way. We show me and my dad in this like slow-mo moment. And it worked so much better when we had this uh, small test screening in our offices and I was like, I'm an idiot. Of course, this is better. Um, yeah, I mean, like, so, I think so, so you're it, saying sometimes you really resist it, but then you recognize later that the change is good. But I, it also sounds like there's times when you resist it, and you were right to resist it, like the body in um, in Thunder Road. And I think that what I want to highlight is that it, it there's going to be moments where you're right, moments where you're wrong. But your ability to recognize that, like with hindsight, or to not be so stubborn that you throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Like these are things that a really mature creative person can do. And even the most established filmmakers struggle sometimes to be, to accept or admit, ah, I might've been wrong about that. Or maybe I should listen to this person or this producer. Yeah. Well, yeah. We introduced my character. Um, we end the introduction of my character in the Wolf of Snow Hollow by saying, I don't hear people. And like, that's an important thing for the rest of the movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is an incredibly valuable thing that you have to learn. And it usually takes um, putting your ego in the back seat and um, and kind of putting yourself in check. And that's something that's very important to learn. And I'm still learning it. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you, I mean, is it something that you had the ability to do from the beginning? Or is it something that, that really started with the shopping cart, the infamous shopping cart in the water? Like the um, ability to say, like, maybe I'm wrong about something. Because <laughs> I think a lot of times the creative is not willing to do that, you know? Well, yeah. So so my, my I guess, like, my style of making the movie is, like, I, I consider myself more of, like, a DJ, where it's, like, I'm going to put on the next song that the audience is looking for. Yeah. And, like, that's kind of how I think about making cool. movies. Like, like I'm that. always considerate of, like, you know, the dance floor and what people are going to be feeling when they're at this turn of the roller coaster. Um so I, I think like my metronome is set to that of like what people are actually going to laugh at, what people are actually going to cry at and um, if they're going to be bored or not. So like I'm always fighting for that. And so are my producers. They're like people are, you're going to lose the audience here if you have this character say this line like that's just too mean or something like that. Um, and, and so and so like really we're always thinking about audience engagement, and audience interest in the film, um, which is a good thing. And I think if most you know, independent filmmakers specifically think like that instead of like trying to push a vision yeah. or, um, you know, their, their own auteur take on something to, to make something that is a Trojan horse that can do both at the same time that can entertain audiences while saying something big. That's the real trick, huh? 
that Trojan horse. Like if you can make a movie that's entertaining and people walk away from it and think, huh, I guess I learned something or I grew or I experienced something or life is a little different or whatever. That's, that's the magic. Yeah. That's so cool. Uh, I think that the idea of thinking about what your audience wants makes people want to watch your movie in the first place, because who are you making this thing for? Right. Is it a statement? Is it like a personal statement or is it a movie meant to entertain someone? Um, yeah. And then and then going back and forth on that of like, well, maybe sometimes the audience is wrong. Like it's if you're going to show a violent scene, let's make it violent. Like I know most people don't want to see somebody get hurt on film. Obviously, nobody does. But a lot of audience members when it comes to horror movies are complete perverts. And so it's like <laughs> it's OK to do that for that audience. You know, like it, it's OK to offend the majority of the people that are going to watch the film because the, you know, the 25 percent of the audience is going to like it. That's I, I a whole. A, yeah, that's a whole a, other a quarter, fascinating idea. Yeah. A, uh, for twenty five percent of every Google search is pornographic. It's like yeah. I'm not trying to. I'm trying to make movies for twenty five percent of the audience. That twenty five percent, you know. <laughs> well, that's a different kind of movie. But, yeah. but I get your yeah. point. Um, but you're but you're also saying that like uh, there's this the thing of. I mean, I know we're talk, we've talked about like what's ha- going to happen to theaters. But the idea of a theater was like you go into a dark room, the lights go down, you're in a community setting, but you're kind of like in this weird space right mentally and emotionally like you're receptive and it's and and you're you leave your body you leave to go on this journey that someone's taking you on and it seeps into the subconscious a little bit like what do you really want like voyeurism and hitchcock like hitchcock's the ultimate trojan horse filmmaker where he's like delivering you something that you kind of want but you kind of don't want and along the way there's like some there's something else buried in there that you weren't even thinking about Um, But I think that that approach, like, well, I'm not just making the movie for what they consciously want. Sometimes they want something gross and horrible or they want violence or they want, you know, catharsis. Yeah, there's something special with horror movies that's different from other narrative filmmaking that is like when you're telling a horror story, it all kind of slowly creeps toward the terrifying inevitable. And I think that's what's so wonderful about it, where it does hit that like pervert lobe of the brain of let's see how <laughs> scary the thing that I was thinking about 20 minutes ago will be if it actually happens. Um, is, is that how you write it? Is that how you approach it creatively? I know. No, not really. I, I knew. So like, it's funny you mentioned Hitchcock, like Hitchcock is such a huge inspiration for, for this movie, especially the ending, like doing right. using, using the camera to help tell the story and have these reveals in a fun way and involving the audience in the detective story and dramatic irony and all the wonderful, like, you know, storytelling techniques that king that of dramatic irony use. for sure, which is like oh, one of the most man. underused awesome tools, but yeah, it's, it's so much fun in, um, <laughs> in Jamaica in Charles Lawton is, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but there's there's a couple of reveals with him where the audience gets an inside view and like what this guy's all about, and then just following him around, and he has a pistol in this like house, and you're just like, oh no, he's gonna kill everybody! Like <laughs> it's such a wonderful thing, and I get so sucked into it. Like it yes. it hits that part of my brain where I'm like, look out! You know, it's like it's such a simple um, thing, but I love that. It's it, yes. it's how you get a rise out of the audience. It's a, that is that is why cinema works so well, and. Yep. Um, being able to do that cheaply, you know, in, a, in an inexpensive way um, is so possible. Like I saw Krisha for the first time in 2015 and they shot that movie for nothing in a backyard in Texas. And it is still so full of um, cringe and 
and like terror and and the like the, the growing impending inevitability the horror mm-hmm. of it is a horror movie basically it's structured like one right um, if you know what might be coming essentially yeah and you're not sure yeah. when it's going to come well then you're yeah. glued and that sort yeah. of thing works no matter what scale you're creating on like what size of canvas it is yeah, it can also often be better when it is a smaller budget because then you're forced to be creative. When you're yeah. doing a giant budget movie, you can lean on special effects instead of creative storytelling. Which will never be, and this is like the Jaws shark thing, or, you know, it'll never be as scary as what you imagined. Yeah. The effect version. So, so, yeah, I mean, we hide the shark a little bit in this film and then we show it. We show the shark about halfway through the film as a fun technique. I guess we're getting into like spoilers here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, but, we'll be a little we careful, shouldn't. but yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, but but that was all purposeful. All of that yes. is a th- part of the magic trick that like Spielberg was doing, yes. but 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 yeah, to, to do it in a different way is unexpected. And it's like, it's a, yeah, it, it's basically like, like gaslighting the audience to think something and then um, surprising them with the, with the inevitability. And everything builds on what's come before in the sense that you have to find new ways to sustain and twist. Like you can't do the thing that worked 40 years ago necessarily because now people are, that becomes part of the language. So the language has to evolve a little bit where you say, well, we'll do that for half the movie or for a quarter of the movie, but then we're going to turn it a little bit. So it's back to a place you're not quite familiar, right? Yeah. I still have this daydream that if you put out like the burbs or like rope in theaters nowadays or like remade them shot for shot and like it hadn't existed that it would still work just as oh, well. Oh, yes. That absolutely. But that's I mean that's a yeah. The craft behind some of Hitchcock some of Hitchcock's movies are that they uh they work. They're not dated. There's nothing. Burbs is amazing. That's a fun one. You never really know. You're always like, wait, is it? Is it? And then you keep thinking, nah, it's not. Or yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love both those films. So when you, um, so wrapping it, editing it, and then kind of taking everybody's, you know, feedback and then it's done. And as you said, you got notes along the way from people who are no longer working there. Like what, are you you're happy with the finished thing are you on to the next thing you mentioned something of like i yeah. try to go on to the next thing and put whatever i thought i could have done differently into whatever i'm doing next yeah so so i'm i'm editing the new movie a new feature that we made called the beta test from the computer i'm talking to you on um and then i'm writing stuff and trying to make another big movie about movies that i'm crazy about that i i want to do and then also doing development for for smaller things and and larger things in television, but I'm kind of not betting on any of that. Like we've never been able to convince anybody to take us seriously outside of the small feature space. So I'm just going to keep making independent films until, you know, one of these things breaks and we can be trusted to make something bigger. But um, yeah, I think that's it. I'm just going to keep making smaller things with my buddies until we get noticed. And maybe those, I mean, yeah, you never, you can't control outcome, but but that might be a good a good space to continue to work in. Certainly, the way things are going now, it's certainly a lot of leeway. And uh, you know, you obviously you haven't been shoot. You've been editing during the pandemic. Did you shoot it all, or did you were you wrapped up everything? No, yeah, no, no. We we, we wrapped everything in December. We were very okay. lucky that we finished production when we did. Nice, yeah. yeah. Well, it's been amazing having you. I usually like to end on something like. Um, if you had any advice and it may have changed since the last time you've answered this for no film school, but if you have any advice for people who are starting today or, or right around now, what, what would you say? 
Um, never stop learning. Uh, never see that as a stigma that you have to learn something. Learn After Effects, learn Pro Tools, learn how to edit, learn how to shoot things, learn everything um, and treat everything like it is an education and you'll do fine. And the more assets that you have like that, the better that you will be on set. Um, the only reason I'm any good at directing movies is because I've set up all of the C-stands before and I know how long those are going to take um, to set up. So I would say just learn, 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 especially now. Nice. I like that. Uh, learn how to set up a C-stand. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Thanks so yeah. much, Jim. I really appreciate it. George, thank you so much for having me. Thanks everyone for listening uh, to the No Film School podcast today and in our interview with Jim Cummings. Make sure to check out The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Head over to nofilmschool.com where we have horror content all week long. We are just talking about horror movies, the genre, the subgenres, the intersections of different aspects of it, why it's great for indie filmmakers and DIY filmmakers and maybe even some things you didn't know. Uh, plus, we're going to have more interviews that are related to horror film and television on the No Film School podcast. So stay tuned for that. Make sure to like, rate, subscribe, leave a comment. Let us know what you think. You can contact us at editor at nofilmschool.com or ask at nofilmschool.com. Please also follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, do all that good stuff. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>